Outlaws and Scorned Women is intended for entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this show should ever be construed as actual legal advice. Also, it is chock full of adult content, so we do recommend a little bit of listener discretion. on this case were, were many and deep. Yes. It was crazy. Well, and then just as a, a function of trying to understand the cultural backdrop, mm-hmm. the procedural um, criminal justice system backdrop, right. as well as the prison history and the evolution of what these, you know, what these conditions were back right. then. Yeah. It, so many rabbit holes. Oi. Okay. <clears throat> Let us do the intro. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. Uh, My name is Stephanie, and I know a lot about Texas, and that's it. That's not what I want to say. (laughs) I also I don't know just about Texas. I I also bake cakes, but I um, I don't know a lot of the finer points of things. So that's why I have you. So I'll be the sidekick, Stephanie, that, you know, <laughs> I'm tasked with looking up and researching things about the law for which I can, you know, somewhat speak to having mm-hmm. having learned law myself and being a lawyer. Being an actual lawyer, that helps. And yeah. so I, I work with you, our trusty narrator, and mm-hmm. uh, we learn about, we take these explorations in Texas history and crime together. And it's going to be, it's, and it's wild stuff. Like today we are talking about arguably the first serial killer in the United States. A lot of people like to credit that to H.H. Holmes. You ever heard about this guy? What is this? I mean, if you ever want to not sleep again, Google H.H. Holmes, the guy who built, you know, we talk about the murder mansion in Texas. He built a murder house. It's just a giant house. Yeah. So is this the the weird murder house that had all these bizarre dimensions and like secret rooms? Yeah, it had like secret passageways and, and like so that and were all the architects like there was something strange about how it was built? And it like, was something like he he would only work with like an architect for brief amounts of time yes. and stuff like that. And maybe so nobody them, knew the yeah, entire. Like he was the only one who knew the whole layout. Uh, his first victims didn't disappear until 1891. The guy that we're going to talk about, the the serial killer we're going to be talking about, uh, operated in 1884 to 1885. Mm-hmm. So first, hooray, <laughs> go Texas. Uh, we not only had uh, our nation's first public mass shooting, we also got, and not even just Texas, Austin, Texas, yeah. had the nation's first public mass shooting and now the nation's first serial killer. And it is crazy how bloody and how intense and just violent these murders were and this and how ill-equipped the uh the city of austin in 1884 was to even handle it this case is a, a wild bloody uh crazy ride through uh investigations or lack thereof and race relations in the post reconstruction era in texas and uh it's it's a crazy time so buckle up buttercups let's get into this did y'all ever hear about the servant girl annihilator i know it's a hell of a name right but if you're gonna give a name to what is arguably the nation's first serial killer 
you might as well go for the gold. Now, we're very familiar with the concept of serial killers now, but it helps to remember that it wasn't even a concept until like the 1970s. Uh, watch the show Mindhunter, you'll see what I mean. The term serial killer wasn't even used publicly until 1981 in a Times report about a series of killings in Atlanta. So if nobody prior to like 1970-something had any concept of what to call a serial killer, much less how to investigate one, then how exactly would somebody from a century prior handle the situation? Well, let's find out. Let's take a look at Austin, Texas in 1884. Now, just to set the stage for you real quick, this is the Reconstruction Era. It has been less than 20 years since the end of the Civil War, and uh, race relations between the freed slaves and the white folks of Texas are, um, let's say, evolving. It's a process, it's slow, and it ain't pretty, but they're working on it. Also at this time in Austin, there is what uh, Weather Report archives refer to as an Arctic outbreak, just a massive push of freezing Arctic air sweeping across North America. The winter in Austin at this time is so harsh that I found reports of a cowboy and his horse being found in the uh, open range just north of Austin, frozen to death in an ice storm before they could find shelter. Now, Austin in 1884 had a population of about 12,000. For perspective, you could fit everyone in Austin within an eight and a half square block section of modern day Manhattan, or you could fill Hall H at San Diego Comic-Con twice, or every single citizen of 1884 Austin could one-on-one -on -one fist fight every citizen of modern day Gatesville, Texas, which is currently the 226th largest city in the state. Austin was small by modern standards, but for 1884, it was a big, bustling, metropolitan area. It was the capital city. Now, the more people that you concentrate in an area, the more violence you're going to get. That's just the way humans are. So I sat down and I crunched some numbers from the past couple of decades of murder statistics in Austin. Uh, I adjusted for the dramatic violent crime inflation since World War II, and I came up with the following numbers, which are about as accurate as possible for someone with a theater degree. Since 2000, the city of Austin has averaged four murders per every 100,000 citizens per year, which is one murder per 25,000 per year, which means if those numbers applied to 1884 Austin, the city should have had 0.5 murder that year. Half. Half, half a murder. If you take that and apply the fact that the FBI estimates that only about 1% of all murderers are serial killers, then, statistically speaking, Austin should never have had a serial killer at all. But on the morning of December 30th, 1884, when the body of a woman was found so brutally slaughtered that the snowy white scraps of her nightgown appeared to float on a frozen lake of her own blood, the city of Austin was well on its way to finding out that... Statistics be damned, there's a serial killer in town. Hell broke loose could not more appall the good people of the capital city than the dark and damnable deeds done in the blackness of night by fiends. Ooh, right? What is that, Shakespeare? Nope. That is a newspaper headline from the Austin Daily Statesman in 1884. You see, on December 30th, 1884, it was a cold, cold night. 
and the household of one William Hall was awoken by a man outside yelling, help me, over and over, help me, but it's literally freezing, so nobody's in a big hurry to get out of bed and go see what the ruckus is, until the front door of the house is opened, and whoever was yelling for help outside is now inside. So the man of the house lights a match to get a good look at the intruder, and he sees the very bloodied, badly wounded face of Walter Spencer. He's a local brickyard worker, a black man, and the boyfriend of one of the household servants, a lovely 27-year-old black lady by the name of Molly Smith. So here's Walter, begging for help. He says that somebody has damn near killed him, and he can't find Molly anywhere. So William Hall, in a stunning display of empathy and urgency, told Walter to get a bandage on his head and they'd look for Molly in the morning. Well, the next morning, they found Molly. They found her in the alley between the back of the hall house and the local general store. She was on her back, on the frozen ground, her head split nearly in two with an axe. She had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and belly, arms and legs. There was so much blood. The newspaper reported it as, quote, one of the most horrible murders that ever a reporter was called on to chronicle, a deed almost unparalleled in the atrocity of its execution. This crime was hideous. It rocked the town. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Yeah, there had been murders, but they were usually because of somebody pulled a knife in a barroom brawl, or there was a shootout from a couple of guys who still thought this was the wild, wild west out in the street. The 12-man police department had never handled anything like this. There was no such thing as forensics yet. That wouldn't even become a, a basic baby science until the Jack the Ripper killings in a few more years in London. Finger marks, what we know today as fingerprints, were just starting to be recognized and were only theoretically something that could be used as a way to identify people. And there certainly wasn't a database to compare finger marks to. So when the police were assessing the crime scene, they tried to trace the steps of the killer. It appeared that Walter and Molly had been asleep in their bed in a small house on the back of the William Hall property when somebody had come into the room with an axe and struck William and then Molly and dragged Molly out into the night. There was blood all over this room, soaked into the bed, splashed onto the floor, on the walls. There was a bloody handprint on the wall by the door, which was most likely put there by the killer. And the police did notice that there were finger marks in the blood, but again, this wasn't something that they knew could be used to identify anyone. They followed the trail of blood and the bloody footprints out onto the frozen ground and found where Molly had been killed in the alley. Now, of course, Walter was the first suspect. He was the boyfriend, and you always look to romantic partners first. But the fact that Walter was so badly injured, and while injured in the freezing night, had gone looking for help so desperately that he, a large black man, was willing to essentially break into the home of a white man and risk being shot on sight, that kind of spoke to the fact that maybe he was not the killer. So the police found out that Molly had an ex-boyfriend in town by the name of William Brooks. And so in those cold early morning hours, they went and rousted William out of bed, where he was sleeping with his current girlfriend at the time, and arrested him on suspicion for murder. But eventually they would have to let him go. There simply was no evidence that he was in any way connected to the crime. And so the investigation into the murder of Molly Smith would go as cold as the weather. Winter passed and moved into spring, and most folks forgot all about Molly. And so no one connected the wintertime murder of one servant girl with the springtime attack on two other servant girls. Clara Strand and Christine Martinson were walking home one night when a man burst out of the shadows wielding an axe and attacked them. 
They weren't killed, but they were very badly wounded and were completely unable to describe their attacker. Then, just a couple of months later, on May 7, 1885, Eliza Shelley, a 25-year-old black lady who worked as a cook, was attacked in her bed, in the bedroom that she shared with her three small children. She was struck on the head, hard enough to expose her brain out of her skull, and dragged out of the room, out into the alley behind her employer's house, and stabbed viciously to death. The police, upon investigation of this particular murder, probably had the warmer weather to thank for finding men's bare footprints in the blood all around the scene. Then, just a few weeks later, on May 23rd, Irene Cross, a 30-year-old lady of color who worked as a servant in the household of Mrs. Whitman, lived in a small cottage on the property with her grown son and her eight-year-old nephew. And in the middle of the night, she was struck on the head with an axe and dragged out of her bed, out into the night, to be stabbed to death, and this time the violence was severely escalated. She was stabbed so badly that her arm was severed from her body. Now, Irene's eight-year-old nephew, Douglas, slept in the same room as her, and he was the one who was finally able to give an eyewitness description of the attacker. He described him as, quote, a big, chunky Negro man, barefooted, with his pants rolled up. Also at the crime scene, the police were able to find more footprints. This time they found a very clear one, showing the right foot was missing its little toe. Now, after three horrifying murders, the city of Austin finally gets it. There is danger out there in the night. But mostly that danger is understood to be for the black people in town. Because racism. There was an author living in Austin at the time by the name of O. Henry. Uh, if you ever had to read the story The Gift of the Magi in school, that's him. Anyway, he famously wrote a letter to a friend in which he said, quote, Town is fearfully dull, except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively in the dead of night. Presumably right before accepting his trophy for most white privileged Anyway, Austin city officials took charge of the public safety. They encouraged citizens to set up patrols of their neighborhoods. They imposed a midnight curfew in town, which obliged the 24-hour saloons to close halfway through their busiest shift. And the city officials urged everyone to arm themselves. They even made up a little jingle about it that went something like this. Get thee a gun, O serving girl, and keep it by thy bed. Take aim upon the ruffian and fill him full of lead. Charming, right? This massive push towards community safety was arguably the greatest show of interracial cooperation in Reconstruction-era Texas. Now, while the community is arming itself and trying to protect their loved ones, the investigation into the murders is kind of spinning its wheels. Again, this is a 12-man police force who has never dealt with anything like this, and they do not have any kind of concept of a serial killer. All they know is that there is a murderer loose, and thanks to O. Henry, everybody's calling this murderer the servant girl annihilator. Add to that the fact that the murderers seem to be picking up speed, they're happening closer and closer together, the cops in town, all 12 of them, uh, are starting to get desperate. They double, triple, quadruple the number of men on the police force. They hire private detectives out of Houston to come and help with the investigation. They arrest damn near every black man in town and question him and ultimately end up having to release all of them. But then as the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and another killing doesn't happen, people start to relax. They start to think maybe the killer left town or maybe he got caught for another crime and he got taken off the streets. Maybe we're safe now. Oh, Austin, 
Bless your heart, if only that were true. Rebecca Ramey worked as a servant in the household of Valentine Weed. She was a young widow and shared the small serving quarters behind the house with her 11-year-old daughter, Mary. By all accounts, Rebecca was very well-liked and respected in the community, and her daughter, Mary, was the apple of the neighborhood's eye. Which is why it was especially tragic when, on a hot summer night at the end of August in 1885, somebody slipped into the servants' quarters struck Rebecca on the head so hard it knocked her into bloody unconsciousness, took Mary and dragged her out into the alley behind the outhouse. Now, pause. I have a daughter about the same age as little Mary Ramey. This entire situation is exactly my nightmare, so I will not be going into the details of what happened to Mary. Suffice it to say, the M.O. is the same as the previous murders, only much, much worse. Mary Ramey's little body was found the next day, and the newspaper would report that while Rebecca did recover from her wounds, she, quote, never recovered from the shock of that terrible night of blood. And honestly, why would she? So the killer's back, or he never left. Either way, a city still reeling in shock starts to spin up into a panic again. Then, on September 28, 1885, Gracie Vance, a household servant, and her boyfriend Orange Washington, a local construction worker, were also brutally murdered. They had two friends staying in their cottage with them that night who were found hysterical and covered with their friend's blood. Orange was found in the bed with an axe wound to the head, barely clinging to life that he would die within a few hours. Gracie was found in an alley about 75 yards away from her bed with a now horribly familiar axe wound to the head and many, many stab wounds. The Austin police force started making more arrests in earnest. They went down the entire victim list and arrested each victim's husband or lover or cousin or, or brother or father, every man in the immediate circle of each victim. They arrested them, they questioned them, and eventually had to let them all go due to lack of any evidence connecting them to the murders. So the police cast a wider net. I found reports that upwards of 400 men were arrested over the course of this entire investigation, and presumably all of their shoes were removed and all of their toes were counted, so their feet could be compared to the one clear footprint they were able to find that showed the right foot missing its pinky toe. But ultimately, they were all released. The police found no one. And time, as it does, marched on. Fall turned into another freezing cold winter. And on Christmas Eve, 1885, a lady by the name of Susan Hancock was asleep in her bed when she was struck on the head, knocked unconscious, and dragged out into the backyard. Her husband Moses, who was asleep in his own bed in a separate room, woke to the noise, went to investigate, and discovered the door to the backyard was wide open, and there, out in the yard, a man, a dark figure of some kind, was attacking his wife. And Moses scared the intruder off and started yelling for help, calling to his neighbors. He scooped up his badly, badly wounded wife and carried her back inside. The police were summoned, neighbors gathered, panic was ratcheted, higher and higher than it ever was before, because Susan Hancock was white. Every attack up to this point had been on a serving girl, a black serving girl. Not only was Susan Hancock white, but she and her family were very well-to-do. It seemed as though the servant girl annihilator had developed a taste for more privileged blood. 
Susan survived three long, agonizing days before she died of her wounds on December 28th. The police threw themselves into the investigation with renewed fervor and arrested her husband Moses. You see, during their investigation, the police found a letter hidden underneath Susan's bed. She had written it to her husband, but had apparently never given it to him. And this letter stated that Moses was an abusive drunk and Susan was planning on leaving him. Conversations with Susan's family members confirmed all of this, so police felt pretty good about arresting Moses for his wife's murder. Finally, a murder they can actually solve. But that wasn't the only tragedy that struck that Christmas Eve. Oh no. The body of Eula Phillips was found in her in-law's backyard. Eula was 17 years old, already married and the mother of a baby boy. She was known to be having a not-so-secret affair with a man by the name of John Dickinson, a handsome, single, local politician, the secretary of the Capitol Commission. But in early December of that year, Eula and her husband James Phillips had reconciled, and Eula had moved back in with her husband. But then just a few weeks later on Christmas Eve, James Phillips was found lying in a bloody bed with a vicious head wound. He was alive, but very badly hurt, and there was no sign of Eula anywhere. A trail of blood led from the bed out onto the porch, across the yard, to the outhouse, where they found Eula. She was nude. Her arms and her torso were pinned to the ground by large pieces of timber, and in addition to the massive wound in her head that had clearly been delivered by an axe, she had been stabbed repeatedly. And just like Susan Hancock, Eula Phillips was a white woman. The public outcry to find the murderer and hold someone accountable for this nice white lady's death was massive, and so the police arrested James, her husband, on the basis that clearly he was jealous over her affair with John Dickinson. So, if both of these women's husbands were arrested and put on trial for their murders, why are we even talking about Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips on a show about the Servant Girl Annihilator? Well, Moses Hancock was found not guilty at trial, and James Phillips was convicted, but then he later appealed and the conviction got overturned. And so the investigations into the murders of Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips were unsolved all over again. The Austin police were forced to conclude then that they had also fallen victim to the Servant Girl Annihilator, adding their names to the list with Molly Smith, Eliza Shelley, Irene Cross, Mary Ramey, Gracie Vance, and Orange Washington. Eight victims in total, and all the police had to go on, was one eyewitness account from a traumatized eight-year-old boy and a bloody footprint showing a man's right foot missing its little toe. The investigation goes on and on, but eventually loses steam when the police start to realize that the murders seem to have stopped. And that's it. I'm sorry, y'all, but there is not a tidy little bow to wrap around this entire situation. The Servant Girl Annihilator murders remain unsolved to this day, 135 years later. There are, however, theories. Many, many theories. I'll tell you about a few of my favorites. Uh, we have one theory that it wasn't one person but two, a pair of murderers, because it would take two people to be able to attack and move victims out of their homes so quickly and so quietly. There's another theory that the Annihilator was actually a patient at a local insane asylum who would periodically escape, kill somebody, and then sneak back into the asylum when they were done. There's the Nathan Elgin theory. Nathan Elgin was a black man who, in December of 1885, was shot by police during a domestic dispute and died of his wounds. An autopsy would show a bullet lodged in his spine, 
and a right foot missing a pinky toe. The fact that he was killed right about the time the murder stopped really lends, I think, a lot of credence to this theory. There's another theory that the servant girl Annihilator fled Austin and traveled to London where he became Jack the Ripper. I shit you not. I mean, the timeline kind of adds up. The Servant Girl Annihilator killings ended in 1885. Jack the Ripper didn't start killing until about 1888. So, I don't know, plausible? But then who was Jack the Ripper? Well, there's about 9 million different theories about that. But if you start to sort of overlap the, the people who could have been Jack the Ripper with the people who could have possibly been the Servant Girl Annihilator, you come up with two candidates. There's the Malay Cook theory. Uh, by Malay, I assume they mean Malaysian, but who knows? This was a cook who was working on ocean vessels that arrived in London in 1888. There were reports of a cook matching that description who called himself Maurice, who was working at the Pearl House Hotel in Austin in 1885. Could have been the same guy. No one knows for sure. The other candidate is a man by the name of James Maybrick, who was a cotton merchant from Liverpool, who was, according to his own journals, living in Austin on the dates that the Annihilator struck, and was also in London on the dates that the Ripper struck. James Maybrick died in 1889 of arsenic and strychnine poisoning, possibly delivered by his own wife. The M.O., the uh, modus operandi, for the Servant Girl Annihilator and for Jack the Ripper are kind of similar? They both attacked lower-class women. Uh, the Servant Girl Annihilator attacked servants. Jack the Ripper attacked prostitutes. But really, other than the brutality of the attacks, that's about where the similarity ends. And honestly, we may never know the truth, whatever it may be. All we know for sure is that after Christmas Eve 1885, the Servant Girl Annihilator, who had held the city of Austin in terror for a full year, was never heard from again. All right, then. Because nobody was... Oh, there was a bajillion arrests. Uh, there was, was it like 400? Oh, yeah, like 400 arrests. Before we get into that, yeah. can I tell you my theory? Oh, I want to hear it. Because there were so many theories about who could have been the Servant Girl Annihilator. Um, I think that Nathan Elgin is the strongest candidate they have. And not just because he was actually missing his pinky toe on his right foot, and his foot matched all of the bloody footprints at the crime scenes. Not just because of that. Also, the domestic dispute that he was shot during... Uh, the, the police shot him because the, by domestic dispute, uh, I did a little more digging. What that means is he was actually uh, trying to kidnap a girl to go rape her. So the police stopped him in mid-attempted rape, shot him. He died of his wounds. And then they did the autopsy. And oh, hey, this guy who was about to rape a girl might also have been the guy who has been uh, serially murdering and doing horrible things to women in town. So I think he was the servant girl annihilator. But I don't think he killed... Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips. Interesting. Okay. I think that Susan Hancock was killed by her husband um, because she, over the course of the investigation, the police found a letter underneath her bed where she said, where she told Moses, you're an abusive drunk. I can't take it anymore. I'm taking our daughter and we're moving to Waco. But then she didn't give it to him. Mm. But I think Moses knew. And I think Christmas Eve is a crazy time for families with a lot of drama. And I think Moses attacked her okay. and then decided to pin it on a mysterious dark figure in the backyard. And, and oh, it was must have been the servant girl annihilator. And so I think that they had it right when they arrested Moses. 
Also, and part of it is not just because Moses is totally guilty, but serial killers, from a, from a modern understanding of serial killers, they don't change their target. Serial killers tend to hunt within their ethnicity, and they have a specific type that they're going for. Mary Ramey was an aberration because she was so young, but the rest of the serial killer annihilators, um, serial killer annihilator, if only servant girl <laughs> annihilators. That would be um, Dexter. That would be amazing. But the rest of his targets were 20, 30 year old black women. And to all of a sudden be attacking Susan Hancock, who was a 40 year old well-to-do white lady. It was completely outside of anything that he had done before. So, so too great of a divergence. Yeah, it was too completely different. I think in a, in a modern setting where we know more about serial killers and how they operate in their psychology, that would never have been eventually laid at the Annihilator's feet. Eula Phillips, she's this uh, lovely 17-year-old girl who's got this husband she doesn't like a whole lot, but she's got boyfriends. And her boyfriend at the time was a local politician. Now, I don't think James killed her. I don't think her husband killed her. I think her boyfriend did. Because that Christmas Eve, um, she had snuck out of the house to go meet with her boyfriend at these assignation houses. Have you heard about assignation houses? No, so what is that? I think they should still be a thing. Um, so their houses usually run by um, older single ladies who are widows, perhaps, or spinsters, as it were. And uh, it's just a house where you can rent a room for a night to meet with your illicit lover without having the publicity of having to check into a hotel. Yeah. It's just a little, little assignation house. So she had snuck out that night to see uh, to see her lover at an assignation house, but the house was full. They, they were all booked up for the night because it's Christmas Eve. What else are you going to do besides go meet your lover? No, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're, you're celebrating sure. with, with your side piece at the assignation house. Anyway, they were booked, so she had to leave. And I think... I, I suspect a boyfriend's involvement. Like maybe she was asking a little more of him or maybe there was some other complication or she was going to go public because he was a politician. He had this reputation. This is very interesting. That he had to protect. This is just me speculating I wildly. So because the servant girl annihilator was not caught mm -hmm. and was not put on trial, uh, you don't really have like the law to explore on this one. Um, so you said you went down a rabbit hole about prisons. So I looked at, I was trying to understand, um, you know, how, how we would handle this. Like so, if he had been caught, what would have been? Right. Him? Did we even have the facility to put a serial killer? Right. And it turns out, um, you know, the, the prison system was established by the legislature in 1848. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in between 1848 and um, the, the period for which, the servant girl annihilator was operating. There was a whole period of civil war, upheaval, right, chaos. Yeah. And um, so then there was the issue of now we have this upsurge of um, inmates mm -hmm. and poor conditions and the inability of the state to pay for and resource a prison. So the wonderful um, idea, and I say that just... Mm -hmm probably way too glibly, the idea that <laughs> arose and that became authorized was the lease convict system. So what happened was... Um, okay. lease, lease as in to rent, L-E-A-S-E, oh. lease? To lease the convicts as labor. Oh. So that happened. This is some Shawshank Redemption shit. It, it is, and it, but it, um, you know, Hollywood sanitizes even mm. some of the most. This was not, you know, a plucky... 
Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou style tale. So. <laughs> oh, man, I love that movie so hard, though. I know. It's got the best soundtrack of any it movie ever. does. Them's my progeny. So, okay. Okay, go on. So a quick recap. In 1848, the legislature, because um, apparently you always wanted a, a system to, you know, a, an operating functional prison would be very useful. Um, and then you could outlaw the corporal punishments where people are just being whipped mm-hmm. on posts and, and hung. And so... Um, when the prison was established, there was also a new criminal code and things were abolished. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like what? Those what? corporal punishments. And so then um, the death penalty became reserved for murder, treason, inciting a slave rebellion, oh. and breaking and entering. Okay. Then other felonies, you would send someone to prison. So prior to this uh, criminal code going into effect where the death penalty was just for those crimes, what could you have been killed for legally? Like, what could you have been executed for? So that would be up to the sheriffs and juries. So just just whatever so, yeah, there seemed were, worth it. But it was, yeah, it was pretty rough. So hangings were common is, is, a, is a phrase or a, a notion that I ran into mm-hmm. in several different sources. Oh, my God. So... So it sounds like the criminal code was like, hey, guys, we are not the Wild West anymore. You can't just decide to throw a rope over a tree branch because somebody done you wrong. Uh, There's actually going to be laws. There's actually going to be crimes that are bad enough that we have to kill you for. And otherwise, we're just going to lock you up. So that was the ideal. But then also, you know, as noted by the inciting a slave rebellion, this is also an era of slavery. Yeah. So there were also lynchings like there were hangings that so when did this this criminal code go into effect so that was 1856 oh okay was the when the criminal code was established yeah so got a little time like there is still slavery the civil war hasn't even really gotten off the ground that's right and then initially once that happened juries kind of felt it seems like reluctant to send folks to these to the prison oh so then initially there were several guards and 10 prisoners like in 1850. By 1855, there were 75 prisoners. In, in one particular facility? In the state prison. One prison. So for we built all a of big Texas? state prison, yes. Texas was so huge back then. So, one yes. prison? And so um, oh there was, God. we established, I want to say, I don't know the dates for establishing additional, but for the first prison, it got up to 182 inmates in 1860. Well, what was the capacity? Was that just how many were there? So or? it was just sh- um, just around 200 because um, by the time we hit critical mass, they had like 400. Jesus. And you have to figure out how are we going to accommodate this many prisoners. The um, first female prisoner, and that was around 1860, was mm-hmm. um, a 23-year-old Elizabeth Hoffman, and she served a year for infanticide. So they had... What? So okay. that's So she got put in the same prison as... 400 Uh, men? Now, there was a wing that was made for female prisoners. Because at least they understood then that you could not put her in with the male general population. That's correct. And um, what's also interesting is um, in one of the things I was reading, for one of these first prisons, when they built the wings, they had the dimensions of the um, cells. And the women's cells had an additional foot in length. Huh. Curious. There's no explanation. Just... I'm going Their cells to, were slightly larger. I'm going to pretend that there was some lingering sense of propriety and of the horror of having to lock up a lady in the first place. Like, clutch my pearls, we're putting women in prison now. Are you kidding me? 
that they uh, assuaged their consciences on that a little bit by giving them an extra foot of space. Do okay. we know the ethnicity of Miss Hoffman? Oh, no. Mm. But I would assume she was um, white or Hispanic mm-hmm. because until after the Civil War, it was or it was um, after the Civil War that there were African-American inmates oh, okay. entering the prison. Oh, hold on. The horrific implication of that is prior to the Civil War, if you were a slave and you, you broke the law, you by... would just be dealt with by your owner. That is very You were correct. not a person, therefore not subject to criminal law. Yes. And well, <laughs> part of that backdrop of horrible torture and abuse and violence... <sighs> Um, and then on the frontier, people were used to, there were still raids of, um, Indians and right. there were still frontier fights. So violence was almost just the it was, familiar well, mood so, of the time. So it's almost like bringing on this criminal code that defines what could be given capital punishment and establishing a prison. These were big steps towards civilizing Texas. Absolutely. Right. And um, how far did they get so <laughs> civilization, though? By 1852, the idea or the concept of running a prison, it became clear that um, that's expensive business. <laughs> and it was also seen as if you were in prison, you don't get to just be idle. Right. Like in order to rehabilitate, mm-hmm. um, you needed to be disciplined mm-hmm. and you needed to provide some form of you needed to be um, economically beneficial. So you needed to work it off. Absolutely. So the um, first instance of um, prison labor, there was a factory, and I want to say it was textiles, um, that was authorized to be built. Uh And the prisoners assisted in the building of the factory that they would then be put to work in. (laughs) And then it became very profitable. And um, it also turns out around that time, Despite all um, senses of trying to create this civil structure Mm -hmm. for prisons, um, there were reports of whippings, people being hung by their thumbs, being branded or maimed because of, you know, the drive to um, create more productive labor. Right. So this this was folded into the discipline. Absolutely. uh, And particularly, I imagine, during the the slave-owning era, you got this prison full of white people who did not appreciate now being treated like slaves. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure, you know, um, people think, what are you going to do? I'm already in this prison. Yeah. Life is What else are you going to do? Well, apparently there's a lot. There's a whole lot we can do. That's right. And then so by the Civil War and um, the upheaval, Mm -hmm. you know, the state's resources are just crippled. Right. No, Texas was was broken. That's right. All of the southern states were. And so this prison that was built. And they deserved it. And uh, (laughs) no, for real, the prison that was built starts to fall into disrepair. Um, You know, there during the Civil War, prison labor was used to supply the um, the Confederacy. They were they part were of used the as Confeder- troops? No, Confederate supply chain. Their, oh, no. Their textiles mm-hmm. and different goods that were needed, and they apparently could not keep up well, no. with the demand. Yeah. Um, and then I found out there was a siege on the prison for six weeks around that time, towards the end, um, where some outlaws were threatening to um, try to break into the prison, free the prisoners, and then break into the prison 
supplies, the, the stocks they had there. So the outlaws were just there for the supplies? They were there to raid the resources, apparently. So the, the prison Ouch. walls withstood mm -hmm. that attack, but the state had to admit it didn't have the resources. It wasn't able to so um, sufficiently or, you know, um, oversee and supervise mm -hmm. the running of the prison. And um, the brilliant idea came by... Was it, is this for real brilliant or like oh. brilliant... Brilliant. This is brilliant, but it hurts you to your soul. Okay, <laughs> that sounds like... So in order to repair the facilities, in order to ensure the... On, on one hand, the um, optimistic view mm -hmm. was that it would enable not only repairing the facilities, but maybe the, the hospital that's supposed to be in the prison. Okay. And, you know, ensure mm -hmm. that you could feed and care and actually... properly for the, the inmates. Uh -huh. Um you know, the state decided or recognized that it couldn't do it. So it allowed a private company to <clears throat> run the prison. <clears throat> and the private company would in turn lease the convicts to various private interests like mm -hmm. railroad or um, cotton farm or or other, uh -huh. you know, and I'm um, sure they industry. And they very make, well treated during these jobs. Oh, goodness. And they would make payments to the state. And no, the, the, the problem that was pervasive was the conditions were horrible. Right. The treatment was horrible. Okay. People, um, there are stories that some of the, the convicts were self-mutilating to make themselves unable to Jesus. be put on the work details. There were suicides. Um, by 1875... An inspection revealed there was scurvy, there was beatings, there was um, self-mutilation. It confirmed all of the various um, industries that Jesus. the convicts were put to. And the report said the, that it was clear the rules had not been complied with. The um, convicts were given bad food. There was a lack of medicine. There was so, disrepair in the prison. So by rules, do you mean the state was like, hey, private company, we're going to let you run this prison, but here are the rules that you have to abide That's by. That's right. And so... Um, like um, who who maintained their standards of, of care and treatment when they were rented out to somebody? That That's right. So they were mistreated by, you know, when they were on site. Oh, my God. There was a point at which the leases were terminated, mm -hmm. and then... Instead of allowing the private company to run the prisons, then the state oversaw um, the prison, but then was forced to resort to leasing out convicts. So they stopped rent-a-convict because it was terrible. That's right. And and the this private company was, was treating the prisoners in an incredibly inhumane way. So they took over and realized, oh, wait, prison is still expensive. So we're going to do this, but we have to reinstitute rent-a-convict. Yes. Good God. Plus, um, the state was bringing in there a lot of money. So there was a lot of incentive for some of the um, abuses that were accumulating mm -hmm. to be overlooked until there was a full outcry. Okay. And it turns out there was. There was mm -hmm. a San Antonio Express news reporter uh -huh. that broke a story like, hey. When, when was this? So I want to say that was in 19, 1900s. Oh, um, and so, so it ago. was, that's right. <laughs> Wait, when in the 1900s? <laughs> so, well, so the, that system existed for a whole like 50 years. Oh, good God. So by, um, I think 1908 or so, it was being ramped down. And by like 1912, the operation of that system 
was forced to to cease. Okay. And so, so we were no longer leasing out convicts by 1912. Right. So the reason I brought up all of that 50 yes. years of history is because this occurs smack in it. Yeah. In, yeah. So, in so the servant girl and idolater, this whole thing goes down right in the middle of all that. Right. And so um, when I was thinking of like, would there have been um, a facility? Could they have, mm-hmm. you know, handle that? Well, yeah, there, there's a chance that somebody would either have the death penalty mm-hmm. because of the, the murders well, yeah. and, or they would be moved into mm-hmm. the state's prison, which was reserved for felonies mm-hmm. and and murder. Did they um, have, was it segregated by then? So I don't know if the prison itself was segregated from mm-hmm. what I read. What I did read about the convict leasing system mm-hmm. was there were um, assignments of value to the convicts. Oh. And one of the ways in which they were divided was mm-hmm. by race. Mm-hmm. And in this system, African-American inmates fetched a higher dollar or higher um, price what That's... for their labor huh. than Hispanic or white inmates. Why? Okay, that's the opposite of what I was expecting. So, uh, in was a it... really grotesque oh, no. vein, was I it... think it was a sense of you know back then people They're... were comfortable with slave labor <clears throat> and they're and better they workers. Obviously, comfortable with the idea. Ugh. Yeah, and so um, by 1902, some of the statistics were. There was an abnormally high number of deaths mm. and number of people escaping. Yeah. So you found a way out. You so, would get out. So if you, it's escaping. Yeah. I mean, this is an oh brother, where art thou moment or a <laughs> cool hand Luke moment. No, for sure. Right. And so, um, and your, your expectancy, like your survival in the, in that prison mm-hmm. was about seven years. Oh. They said because labor, because the unsanitary conditions, mm-hmm. um, your risk of being shot by a guard, all of those things would drive you to want to escape. Right. Um, even there was somebody, I can't, um, I'll have to look for his name, but there was a proponent, an advocate for prison reforms mm-hmm. who had the brilliant idea, and this time I mean it, mm-hmm. of, hey, let's not have juveniles in the same prison as these hardened adults. And so he, you know... Hold on, hold on. I'm going to need to record scratch that for a second. Juveniles and adults were in the same prison facility. Yes. One of the records I read (laughs) showed pages and pages, or it reflected that there were pages of logs detailing the ages, and there were so many under the age of 17, some as young as 12, and the youngest they could find was seven. A seven-year-old a seven-year-old. was put on trial and put in prison. Can you? I can't even. So I'm when a, I, 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 oh, oh, oh. for what? What was? Did you find out what? No, they didn't. This dastardly that. first grader did. So that it was merely that there was um, a ledger, mm-hmm. like you know, it looked like one of those ledgers where people's names were written in it, and they had ages. And um, so I found that that's absolutely appalling. But there was a proponent that was mm-hmm. like, hey, we need a juvenile Maybe center. there should be a separate and facility. And that was a movement. Mm-hmm. But even he was, um, when he supervised the, the prison for a while, um, he was a superintendent mm-hmm. for a period. He was also somebody that would use um, a bizarre, like a spur, that if somebody had tried to escape, mm-hmm. they were fitted with implements that made it, um, you know, very uncomfortable for them to try to escape again. So... You know, he wasn't, huh. he was still a hardcore, brutal disciplinarian the way 
so in the, the vein more, of other folks, but right. he did have some senses of like that we're one, supposed to care and provide, yeah. and there are certain limits to. So this is I'm I'm really. I don't know. I really like, I don't want to say I like chain gangs. I don't like chain gangs. Uh, I, but I've been, you know, I've got a cinematic education in chain gangs where it's like, you know, what's that one Charlie Sheen movie? There's a song about it where it's like, I totally remember. That's the sound of a man working on the chain gang. Like I imagine it was right. Um, but like cool hand Luke, he was on a chain gang, you know, the, so I, is that what they they actually did? This isn't a, a Hollywood invention. They actually put men on chains. So there was a book work? I found um, that had um, actual memoirs mm-hmm. and histories written in the first person, and it was called Texas Gulag. And whoa, 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 whoa. I, Gulag. That is the title. That is a word that I associate with like a prison carved out of the frozen Siberian permafrost. Yes. And with the, the Russians. No, that's right. There's <laughs> lots of boots and yelling. That's the Texas Gulag, huh? And so and I, I believe the title is illustrative. Yeah. Of that's that's the stories contained within. Absolutely. Oh and he talks about the the history of prison inmates being sent out to railroads, coal mines, plantations, Mm -hmm. and the various um, abuses. Just compelling and riveting and also awful because it's very visceral um, because you're not just talking about, you know, actual physical violence, but Mm -hmm. then you're talking about succumbing to the unsanitary conditions Mm -hmm. and, you know, the psychological torture of being, you know, in those conditions. Mm -hmm. And so... um, you know, to that end, we have certainly come yeah. quite a long way today because, because okay. we know that you don't treat people in prison that way. We you, know because you don't. You, there's no rehabilitating anyone when you're treating them like they're not human. And that's exactly what it was. It was so dehumanizing right. and demeaning and, and horrifying. So the prison, where was the Texas State Prison? Was that okay. in Huntsville? Huntsville. Because Huntsville is where it's where Carla Faye Tucker was executed. Huntsville is where apparently all the big prison shit in Texas goes down. It would not surprise me to know that Huntsville is this prison you were talking about. Oh, so the um, the article where I got a lot of um, for information about the dimensions of the prison and from the the archives it's called Fear, Force, and Leather: The um. Texas Prison Systems, First Hundred <laughs> Years. Fear, force, and leather does not, to me, sound like a book about prison. It sounds like a book that you buy at half price books and then you sneak it out and hide the cover so nobody knows that you're reading BDSM erotica. (laughs) So, yes, the the location that was selected was Huntsville. That is the prison. That's that's where everything prison-y ultimately goes down in Texas, apparently. Yes. It's got some history. Oh, so the the construction, you'll like this. Oh. Um, Each wing Mm -hmm. included dark cells for punishment. Oh, no, no, Um, no. They had that shit at Alcatraz, too. Um, There was a 144 cell south wing. So by dark cell, you mean completely lightless? I think so. No windows? Because it said they were dark cells for punishment. Oh, Jesus. There was an 88 cell east wing. Mm -hmm. Then a 36 cell west wing. So each cell was five foot wide by seven feet long, but eight feet long for women with How eight foot ceilings. many people did they put in a five foot wide, seven foot long cell? So at, at one point, there were approximately 400 inmates 
And so that's not enough cells. That's right. And but at the same time, there were leases. Mm. So I, you so know, I'm not sure right how they were rotating the the usage of the cells with those but, that I mean, were being five leased feet, to five feet wide. That's my that's less than my arm span. I would be able to put knuckles on each wall. Mm-hmm. And seven feet long, like, that would be barely a foot past the end of a grown man's feet if he were to lay down. That's so, that's a closet. So and were, not a very big very closet. very small. Yeah, I agree with you. And it, you know, after a day of hard labor, mm-hmm. I imagine these cells were being used just to, just to collapse in. Yeah. I mean, it's not like there was a lot of, I imagine, uh, wishing and hoping and dreaming and creating and rehabilitating going on yes. in these meat closets that people were being put into these oubliettes yes i like it i mean i don't like no we don't like it we don't like it it's a good word what (laughs) that's what i meant it's a terrible word (laughs) so getting back to the prisoners were used to construct the place where they worked and the prison where they lived Mm -hmm. were there any escape attempts or escapes done by prisoners who had built into the space a way to get out Oh, so that is not noted in in what I read. Damn it! So if we need that to write was that the wacky case, screenplay. that would be interesting. Um, yeah. So it seems like, like there were a, you're you're in charge of building the cell block. Maybe you put like one of the cells has got like a hollow brick in it, and you just kind of hide a like, few spoons in there. Yeah, you just like dig into the mortar a little bit, and there's your hacksaw. Like, wouldn't that be awesome if you could? <laughs> well, <laughs> wouldn't it be amazing if a hardened criminal of some kind was able to escape? But like, I think that would be something that you would have to at least try. I mean, yeah, it does seem like at maybe a you put point, in some of the bars a little wobbly. Yeah, yeah. It seems like, you know, this was beyond just serving mm-hmm. your time and then going right. back to civil society. So I think some folks, you know, that tried mm-hmm. to escape, that did everything they could, were well within that. Yeah. Like, I wasn't given the death penalty. I was I was told I had like two or three In years. Fact, it would almost be like the death penalty would be a mercy if you're just going to be sentenced to a place where you're going to die slowly painfully for seven eight years seven years you said was their life expectancy was the expectancy to, yeah um well and not to mention that like the death penalty doesn't necessarily come with torture right and it sounds like this was torture that the least convict just arrangement gross. this notion that you know we're going to send people just because they've been convicted of in some cases, who knows what kind of petty theft mm-hmm. to go do hard labor whatever horrific on a crime or in a, a mill. Yeah, or, yeah, whatever evil deed that seven-year-old got up to. Oh, I mean, my totally. Gosh. In he that- had it coming. But this also really sounds like a system that would be rife for corruption and bribery and backdealing. Like- so, yes, there was one indication that because, you know, you're you're extracting all of this like mm-hmm. valuable service and this wealth right. from the prison labor. Um, at one point, there was an accounting, and it looked like there was there was a lot of money missing, mm-hmm. a lot of um, resources that hadn't been installed either in the prison or had been kind of removed. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that was part of it because it was lucrative mm-hmm. to all parties involved. Um, and what there would be no reason for there not to be kickbacks to a judge. To sentence people to prison to be oh, to beef up the labor force. I did not find anything on that, but God, that would be just. If I was an evil judge, that's what I'd do. 
the some of the pressure to continue that system was the fact that there were too many inmates. Mm -hmm. Well, and it would be, I would think, almost like a relief, like like the valve on a pressure cooker to send a bunch of guys out on a job just to get them out of the population so that the population can breathe a little more mm -hmm. in the prison. Because any time that you let a prison population get, it's going to come to a boiling point. Uh, where you're going to have riots on your hands, your, your your guards are going to be unsafe now because you've treated these people so badly they have nothing left to lose. Yes, well, and it seems like even away, even on in these remote locations where um, the convicts were sent to perform labor, mm -hmm. they were they were mistreated there as well. Yeah. And so um, I think you're right. The idea was, yeah, we can take people and send them over there, and it's a win-win mm -hmm. in some regard. But um, yeah, the overarching problem, and it, it persists through all of the historical records, is, man, people were just treating these prisoners with with no regard for their humanity, Ugh. no regard for the fact that these were individuals that should have had rights. And I think, yeah, nowadays we know for a fact, you know, you mm -hmm. have some rights to assert even when you're in prison. Yeah, like you're still a human being even when we've locked you up. That's right. You are still entitled to medical care. You are still entitled to not be beaten and stuffed in so, a dark cell forever. If you were, hypothetically speaking, a uh, serial killer in 1884, 1885, um, you would have no reason to want to survive your encounter with the police. Absolutely not. If you knew... Now, there's some, mm -hmm. you know, who knows how much everybody knew from the whispers and mm -hmm. rumors until the scandal completely yeah. broke. But yeah. yeah. Well, everything that you have told me just confirms for me that my theory is absolutely correct. Nathan Elgin was the servant girl annihilator. When he saw those police coming down the street with their Stetson hats and their little tin badges on their department issue horses, because we didn't have cars back then, because it was 1885, uh, he knew they're going to catch me and they're going to take my shoe off. And they're going to know <laughs> that it was me. And I would rather die in the street than get sent to Huntsville prison. Based on the conditions that you have just described to me, I'm not sure I would have made a different choice. Absolutely no. Do not send me to that prison. So I think Nathan Elgin was there. We solved it. We saw a 135-year-old mystery. We just solved it. Nathan Elgin was, in fact, the servant girl annihilator. Same girl. <laughs> what this really, really convinces me is just what, what I'm discovering. The more of these, these sort of dives into Texas criminal history uh, that we do, the more I wonder why anybody would ever break the law in Texas. It's great because on one hand, I was reading about there there were judges and there were men learned in the law. There's this system of laws being created, you know, that had been created, but, you know, being recodified mm -hmm. and we're, we're becoming more civil in some respects. And um, Austin was on the, the cusp of becoming a little metropolitan, you mm -hmm. know, metropolitan city. But at the same time, we had this just brutal background and it just flavored so many other aspects and of life at the time. still does. Like, to this day, I mean, we still have capital punishment. We still have the death penalty. I There's the harsh remember. realities of, yeah. of the confluence harsh. of events, right? Because harsh, that's it. That's right. There were, there were relations between the frontiersmen mm -hmm. and Indian tribes and, you know, um, we're, we're trying to impose civil order and law mm -hmm. in, in governments. And then you have civil war. Mm -hmm. And so we have all of these just disruptive and 
chaotic events mm-hmm. that happen in history and war and and you have just the size the geographical size of the territory how in the hell did they ever think one prison one prison that'll be enough for all of texas well and that was the the state prison right and so right. i guess the locality had their like own little calabooses for local sure. they places had their own local jails of some sort and I really then like had... the word calaboose I, I really wanted to include Calaboose. You know, um, they they would be as set up as their local um, economies would oh, afford. Right? So yeah. the smaller the town, the smaller like there's there's a lot of like Western like Western movie tropes where it's like just the one jail cell. That's right. And and you get arrested and you're you're the newcomer in town. You get arrested, you get thrown in the one jail cell with the drunk who's in there to dry out. And I stuff. often and like, wonder. That's real. Yeah. How how accurate are all those John Wayne movies I watched right. when I was, you know, growing up on, on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> there'd be like one after another. And I'm like, please Turner play classic a Kung movies. Fu film. No like, Kung Fu. All it, John Wayne. It's John Wayne today. Mm-hmm. And Sandy so, yeah. shot Liberty Valance right there. So, uh, yeah, I think the size of Texas, the nature of Texas lends itself to, I mean, the struggle to civilize post-Civil War Texas must have been immense. That's right. And I mean, bless the hearts of of everybody who tried. (sighs) So, um, yeah, my romp into the history of Texas prisons. Quite the romp. Yes. Really. It was really (laughs) rough. So, um, so what else you got? What, what else? Oh yeah, yeah. let's Texas talk about did. some. Oh, she got a book. I found That's a book. an actual book with bookmarks in it, y'all. So we had mentioned it once. Like sometimes, um, it's good to find. Were there neat little, um, I don't know. Were there were there nuggets of legal history that we could talk about? Yeah. And so I was gonna enlighten you or regale you. Oh please, <laughs> with the unwritten law. I'm sorry. How is it? How are you reading it to me if it's unwritten? No. <laughs> Riddle me that. So it was called the unwritten law. Remember, we talked about um, the the notion that if you found at a certain point in the past, if you found your spouse mm-hmm. with another mm-hmm. in that compromising position, in flagrante delicto, that you would be justified. You would be excused. In the homicide uh-huh. that took place, that followed. Oh, that's a justifiable homicide. Catch that your is, wife banging some other guy. That's, that's a right. justifiable homicide. Yes. Um, when was this? Was this an unwritten law? So it was the unwritten law until the justifiable homicide became written in 1856. So it was part of our written codified st- <laughs> statutory law. Um, provided that the the killing took place before the the parties in the act had separated. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> so, are you saying that the law codified whether or not penetration was still happening? No, I think it was. Is it, are they that? still in bed? Oh, okay, together? okay, okay. Are they? Did you find them horizontally? I would say. Well, like, did you rather? actually catch them in the act? Not he's already putting his boots on or whatever. Oh my god. I yes. just really wanted to know that Texas was like, you need to make sure that he is fully penetrated. <laughs> then you can kill them both. Then, <laughs> so what, so then um, how do you set up that scene afterwards to make it look like you were justified? That's when we start getting into some like really dark so, shit. And, well, and I was going to say that the killing them both was an extension that they discussed. But they initially, you could kill the man mm-hmm. your wife was with. But you couldn't kill your wife. Right. Not initially, because I think there was a sense 
that, you know, she she must have been lured oh, okay. having to assent to this uh well, women... This uh, indecent act. Well, women don't think for themselves. Clearly. Obviously, and they don't have any sexual agency or desire of their own. So if this was happening, obviously... Man, but I can't keep doing this. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. Oh, it caused so, me physical pain. I had to stop. Hold on. I'm trying to find it because there was an interesting... There was a whole case about, wait, did the law allow you to, to kill the man mm-hmm. that had seduced your wife? Or did he, you know, did the law allow you to also kill your wife? And there was a case where a man, you know, went to kill the wife first. And so it went up on appeal. And I'm trying to figure out what, remember, I mean, refresh. What was the conclusion? So, um, ah, so what had, what had happened? What happened was. So, um, and the case was Williams v. State. And this happened um, way later in 1914. Williams shot and killed his wife. And the lover. Okay. And um, he confessed he intended to kill his wife. Okay. And he shot her first. So the court reversed his conviction. And so then a year later, it was um, confirmed that where where the wife and the um, lover are caught in these amorous relations, the um, the defendant would be entitled to kill the wife as well as the seducer of the wife. You know, <laughs> so I just think that's a really interesting little piece of so our law. Here's my question. At what point did that law get struck from the books? <laughs> because this was in 1850-something. You said that that law was like, let us spell out exactly under what conditions you are allowed to murder a person and also your wife. Uh, I want to know when we stopped being able to do that. Okay. Is that still a thing? Because I want to get shot. No, it is. It was repealed in 1973. Are you shitting me? (laughs) 1973? Um, That is correct. You mean up until 19 goddamn 73, you could still legally kill your wife and her lover? So interestingly, like, um, yeah, there was a case in 1974 that discusses that the, the the laws changed. And, um... Sometimes, however, you have a law on the books that you really can't rely on, right? right? Like if there was a law that I found some weird bit of of statute that allowed me to do something that is clearly by all other in- senses of reality illegal, then um, it, it would be unwise for me to like, try to that, assert that. That's like, how you know you become the case in which that law comes up for review and gets struck down. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So which, what, which happened? What we're saying that, wait, hold on. Let me get, I was going to pause. That happened? Well, the That's case, why? Well, no. When the court, um, so there was a repeal in 1973, but then the court discussed that law and its repeal when a trial court said, no, we're not going to instruct a jury mm-hmm. that you were justified and allowed right. to kill your wife in this instance. Because that's insane. And so then on appeal, the lawyers are like, but, 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 but there's a law. Mm-hmm-hmm. And the, the appeals court was like, uh, we're not we're not really biting. We're, we're going to say no. The appeals court was like, you're right. There is a law. Thank you for reminding us about that law. We're going to bump that back to the legislature. So and I, they're going to fix that. You know, on a, on a day I have some some time for reading, I'll pull those cases and read them because oh I'm God. sure they're fascinating That's and interesting crazy. to understand the reasoning. But we did. We had this law on our books. And we had it on our books for oh, a while. Like and a so, century. That's right. If you want to learn interesting things 
like that. There's a book called Lone Star Law, mm-hmm. A Legal History of Texas I'm gonna give, by give, Michael Ahrens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to get that information from you so I can put it up on the website. As That's well. where I got the information about the unwritten law, which I thought we got to we got to. Find something that's just interesting in a totally different vein. So to try and tie this madness back. So that law was in effect in the 1850s. So had it been the case with Eula Phillips that her husband had caught her with John Dickinson, then he would have been justified in shooting both of them. That is not what happened. Her husband was clearly also a victim in this case. He was badly wounded. And also, um, I found a report that his feet were much smaller. <laughs> or wait, oh, larger. His feet were much larger than the footprints that were found at the crime scene. Right. But had that infidelity been something that he had encountered, he would have been legally allowed to murder them both. It would have been... A justifiable homicide. That's He could have marched up to Mrs. Whipple's assignation house and barged into their door and shot them both. And at worst, he would have been responsible for paying to clean the room. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say it in those terms. And I don't know if all of it, but but for real. But I did. (laughs) But he could, he he would raise the defense of, hey, unwritten law. And there is a... A chance that Jerry was like, yeah, unwritten law. Totally. No, that's legit, man. Oh, my God. Well, we hope y'all enjoyed that heartwarming holiday tale straight from us to you. We sure do appreciate you listening. Uh, If you're enjoying the show, please take to the interwebs and let us know. Leave a five-star rating, write a quick review. Uh, It gives us life, like clapping for fairies. As always, we are not journalists or investigators, so we will be posting a list of all of our sources on our website at outlawsandscornedwomen.com. You can find us on all the social medias at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. Uh, you can send any questions or story suggestions or just say hi to outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com. And I think that's everything. So y'all have a good one and we'll see you next time. Bye.